Thank you, worship team. Really appreciate that. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let us continue our worship through prayer. Please bow down with me and pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God beyond our imagination. You're holy, you're sovereign. You're a good God. And thank you for our salvation, for our inheritance in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, strengthen our faith this morning. Give us joy. Give us thankful heart to praise you for our great blessings in you. May you encourage us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and through your own people. May we encourage by the love and encouragement of other brothers and sisters. And Father, as we preach through Ephesians, I pray that you will give us a heart of wisdom and humility because we will look at some difficult truths that is difficult to accept and to understand. So I pray that you will be with us, protect us, and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we, we will continue our preaching series through the book of, or the letter of Ephesians. So I ask you before we go through it, turn your phone into airplane, airplane mode, okay? So you don't get distracted. Because we're going to go through some truths that are hard to understand and accept. And so I, wanna, I don't want you to focus. Don't be distracted. Now before we go into the text, I want to ask you, what is you are thankful for? What are you thankful for to God in your prayer? What are you most thankful for to God? Is it your family? Is it your health, your job, your material things? And even good things like how God have helped you through life to solve some problems. Now, these are really good things. We should, God, we should thank God for these things, for all the blessings that God has given to us. But are these the most important thing that we want to give thanks to God for? Now, what should dominate our praises in our prayer life? Is our prayer life, our praises, worthy of God's love for us? And our passage in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, will answer these questions this morning. So please turn your Bible to Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. I'll read this for us from the ESV. It says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now the main theme of this passage is our praise to our God for our Trinitarian blessings. The theme 
of praise is very clear in this passage. It starts in verse 3. Blessed be God. And it runs through the whole passage in verse 6, 12, and 14. Now, the word blessed does not mean that we can actually give a benefit to God that he is deficient in. Okay? The word bless here means praise. That's why the NIV, many of you have that translation translated as praise. So here God wants us to praise him for our Trinitarian blessings. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, now you may ask, well, where's the Holy Spirit in this? Now, the Holy Spirit is in the word spiritual. Spiritual blessing means blessings from the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about spiritual blessing versus physical blessing. Yeah? It's not talking about our salvation versus physical blessings. We will also have physical blessings. When we inherit God's kingdom, which is a physical kingdom, a perfect utopia, and we will inherit a perfect immortal physical body. So this is not talking about spiritual versus physical blessings. And in verse 13, we know that the Holy Spirit is, a, is, in, is present in bestowing blessings for us because verse 13 says, we are sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. So the verse here starts with the fact that we need to praise God for our Trinitarian blessings. And the rest of the passage explains the details of all these blessings. And the passage can be divided into three major points. The first point is that we should praise God because of the Father's purposeful predestination. This is in verses 3 to 6. And the second reason to praise God is for the Son's glorious redemption. This is in verses 7 to 10. And the third and last reason is for the Holy Spirit's guaranteed inheritance in verses 11 to 14. So let's look at the first reason why we need to praise God for His glorious blessings. And that is the Father's purposeful predestination. Verse 4 says, God the Father choose us believers in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And to be holy and blameless just means we are saved. We are positionally holy before a holy God even though we sin because Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins. And verse 5 says basically the same, same thing with different wording. It says that in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. So here, God has predestined us. He has elected us and chosen us to be saved before the foundation of the world, before the world even was created. And I like how NIV translates the last pair of, uh, prepositional phrase, before the beginning of time. We will choose to be saved before the foundation of the world. And many theologians call this the doctrine of election. Now, I know you will scratch your head and ask, how does that work? I mean, how can God elect us before we were even born? That is quite amazing, um, quite unimaginable. Now, God does not explain how this works completely. We cannot understand it because of our limited human minds. We don't understand how is it like to live outside of time, before time. But we can compare God's election to an author writing a story. Before the characters of a book come alive on the pages, the author already knows these characters intimately in his heart and mind. And so election is something like that. Before we were born, God has intimately known us in his heart even before he created the world. Now God does not need us to completely understand how predestination works. What he requires of us is to believe it by faith. 
And this truth is important to believe because it shows the complete sovereignty of God, not just in time, but outside of time, before time even existed. Without this truth, God seems to be incompetent. He can be seen to be incompetent without this truth. Now, if you read the history of God's dealing with the world, his rule over the world in the Bible, and if you don't believe in election, his sovereignty, you will think that he's incompetent. I mean, look at the Bible. From the very beginning, he created Adam and Eve and the angels, and Satan, the chief of angels, rebelled against him, and he caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin, and the whole world was ruined. And then he calls the nation of Israel to be his witnesses. But they too rebel against God. And God judged them and exiled them. Now from a human perspective, you would think, God, you're not very good at ruling your world, are you? It's falling apart always. What's going on here? And many people in Israel accuse him of incompetence. And this is, what he's, this is how he answered the Jews. He says in Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's not incompetent. He will overcome the sins of Adam and Eve, the nation of Israel, and the devil, and everybody in between. And he will fulfill his good purposes. Nothing takes him by surprise. He doesn't have a plan B. He's not pacing around the floor and, and saying, Oh, what should I do now? What should I do? The world is falling apart. He is not incompetent. And this gives us comfort and joy. Now, what if God says to you, you know, I created a world, but I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, this world is really messed up. I hope it gets better. Wow, these are really sinful people. I hope they believe me. You know, would you, would you find comfort and joy in such God? No. No, of course not. Of course not. It would be frightening that God is not sovereign. Now, I know a group of people who left the former church to come to a new church because the former church kept teaching about how the devil would do this and do that. They didn't teach about the sovereignty of God. So after a while... People thought that the devil was bigger than God. And so they realized that and then left the former church and came to this new church, my former church in, my, uh, church in L.A., and, uh, where it's taught uh, sovereignty of God in time and before time. So we need to believe in this doctrine. And I know there's some difficulties and we will address that. Now, God's election can be compared to an architect's blueprint of a cathedral even before that cathedral is ever built. Before he builds that cathedral, he has a blueprint of all the details before he builds that, right? And if a wise architect would plan all the details out before he builds that building, don't you think God would design everything before he created the world? Would that be wise for him? Yes, absolutely it would be wise for him. And that is what election can be compared to, even though we cannot understand it completely. The doctrine of election is important for us to have confidence in God's wisdom and his loving choice of us and his promise of salvation, especially in a time of trouble. And I know, like, if we have comfortable lives, you know, we don't really struggle with this. We don't really think about this. But it was very important for the early Christians because they faced tremendous persecution. 
tremendous. You know, when Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians, he wrote it from a room in jail. Not from the comfort and authority of a palace, but from a jail. So how can these Christians believe that God rules the whole world even though the apostles were being jailed and killed? And they themselves were suffering too. And you know what? And, at the, and most of the people at that time rejected the gospel, mocked the gospel. So how can they persevere in evangelism, in their love and trust in God? They can do that is because God taught them the truth about election. Nothing takes them by surprise. Predestination. So they knew that the gospel was a hard message to believe, but they continued to pray for others and to share the gospel faithfully because they knew that God has elected certain people and he has commanded all of us to make disciples of all the nations. And this is the reason why Paul persevered in evangelism, even though it cost him his life. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, and he's writing this from his second imprisonment, and he's about to die. And he says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, it's a doctrine of election that caused Paul to persevere and thank God in trials. If we do not believe in this, then God is incompetent and we will never be faithful to him. To him. We will never faithfully serve him. But because of this truth, we don't need to look at our circumstances. We just need to focus on his promises, his truth. And find joy and comfort in that. Now, I want to ask you, when, when's the last time you have ever thanked God for electing you before the foundation of the world? Have you ever thanked God for electing you? I think that many people have never thanked God for this truth because they think this doctrine causes more problem than good. And yes, there has been many problems that have been caused by this problem, uh, this doctrine, uh, as a result of human error. Not because of God, but a result of human error. Uh, many people like to isolate this truth from the rest of the Bible, and they start to use their fallen, sinful human reasoning to come to some very bad conclusions. Uh, some people even will say, Oh, if, if God elects people, then I don't need to evangelize. So what's the point, right? Well, that's not how it works. God elects, and he has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. He has also commanded the methods that he will use to save people. We don't know who God has elected, but he wants us to share the gospel widely. He wants us to pray for non-believers so that God will open their hearts. He wants, to, he wants us to show love to unbelievers. And he also wants us to share the gospel. And that's how it works. We cannot pit election against evangelism. That is not how it works. It only works like that. The problem works is like that because we isolate this truth from the rest of the Bible. Now, I think... Some people also cannot praise God for this truth of election because they are completely puzzled by it. How can God be sovereign and humans be responsible for their sins at the same time? Have you ever thought about that? Now, how can God still judge an unbeliever since he is sovereign over salvation? And some people even think that election makes God to be unjust, unrighteous. Now, if you have struggled with this, or you're struggling with this, I completely sympathize with you because I went through that journey. I also struggle with this. And so I want to share with you my journey and how I overcame these objections and came to the appreciation and praise God for uh, his election. 
And you know, this is not from my cleverness. God has anticipated all these objections in the Bible, mostly from Romans 9. If you look at Romans 9, uh, in the beginning, it talks about the election of Jacob and Esau before they were even born. And then God anticipates our objections and says in Romans 9.14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part because of election? The answer is, by no means. For he has said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, I understand this is a bit difficult to understand. But to understand this, you must have the right starting point. You must have the right starting point. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, all humanity is now enslaved to sin. All humanity naturally hates God, does not love God, and is indifferent toward God. And God does not owe salvation to humanity, especially since salvation is so costly. It costs the suffering and the death of his precious son. So God does not owe humanity anything, salvation. It will be completely just and righteous for God to let humanity to go on their own course, to choose sin, and resulting death and eternal punishment because that is what they want. But God, out of his love and grace, he decided to save some people through Jesus, which they don't deserve. This is grace, gracious and just. He could have compassion and mercy on whom he had compassion. Now, it's like me. Okay? If I have one juta of money and I see bunch of beggars on the street, if I don't give money to the beggars, I'm still just and righteous. I'm not being unfair. But if I choose to give some money to some beggars and not others, I'm still not unfair. I can do whatever I want with my money. And it's the same thing with God's election. He could choose some and not choose others. Because he has sovereign grace. He has freedom to do so. Now I know that there are concern for, we are concerned for unbelievers around us in our families. But election should not make us think that God is unjust. But it should prompt us to be more zealous to evangelize others. You see, God wants to partner with us to save people around you. He wants you to pray faithfully, share love generously, and share the gospel faithfully so that he can use us to save those around us. We don't know whom God has elected, but he will use these things to save people around us. Now, another objection people half about election is in Romans 9 to 9, uh, 9, chapter 9, verse 19. People will complain, well, why does God still find fault with me, non-believers? For who can resist his will? Some people will even give the excuse that they can keep on sinning because God has not chosen them. It is not their fault. But in Romans 9, 20, God does not answer the paradox of how God can be sovereign in, elect, in uh, election and salvation, and humans are still responsible. The verse just says that, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Meaning, don't argue with God. Watch your attitude when you ask a question to God. We can ask questions to God with a reverent heart, with a reverent attitude, but don't ask in an irreverent attitude. And the following verses just explains that God can take one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use from the same lump of corrupt humanity. But it does not explain the paradox of God's sovereignty in election and human responsibility. But both are taught in the Bible, and we need to believe in it 
even though our limited human reasoning cannot solve that paradox. Both truths are important because if we reject election, sovereignty of God, then he is incompetent. But if we reject human responsibility, then God cannot judge righteously because he is not the cause of the evil they are. And if we don't believe that humans are responsible, then what do we even lock up prisoners and sinners, criminals? Right? We lock them up because they're responsible. But how can we live with this paradox? And at the end, I live, it with, I live with it. I believe in both and I live with it because I trust in God's character, even though I cannot understand everything. God's greatest glory is his character. He cares about his reputation. And God's election does not violate any of his glorious character, including righteousness. His election works through his created world, and it works through his character and attributes. He cares so much about his righteousness that he actually had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That's how much he cares about his righteousness. So even though I don't understand this paradox, I trust in his character. And I know that when I see God one day, he will explain it to me and I will understand it. That is how I live with this paradox and accept the truth of election and still praise God for my election. There's nothing special about us intrinsically. There's nothing different intrinsically between us and non-believers. The only difference is that we love because God first loved us. And so glory and praise go to God alone. That is why this doctrine is important. It humbles us. Now, if you are not a believer... What God wants you to do is cry out for faith. Pray that God will give you faith. That is what God wanted Nicodemus to do. And I pray that if you're not safe, don't worry about if you're not elect. Cry out to God to be saved. And when you are safe, praise Him for that. Now let's look at the second reason for praising God, and that is for God's second, uh, son's Gracious redemption in verses 7 to 10. Now, God does not execute his election, the plan of his election, arbitrarily. arbitrarily. He's not a human being. We're a God created by a human being who can arbitrarily forgive someone's sins just because he says so. That will violate his perfect righteousness. God cannot do anything to violate his glorious, perfect character. This is why God the Son had to go, who was sent by God the Father to redeem sinners. So God executes his plan through his character and through his created world. Verse 8 says that the execution of his plan also requires divine wisdom and insight into God's created world. It's not random. And God has made people know this message of the gospel in the world at the right time, at the right place, according to his wisdom and insight. He had to wait for the Roman Empire to come so that there's a common language for the gospel to spread. He had to wait for the peace of Rome Pax Romana, for, for it to come for the gospel to spread in the Roman Empire to the rest of the world. So he actualizes his plan through his created order in the world and through his unchanging character. It is not random. It does not violate any of his truth, righteousness, all his other glorious characters. And through Jesus, we see the glorious grace of God in our salvation. Jesus has given us the greatest blessing in the world, far more than silver, gold, money, 
everything that we have by paying for the penalty of our sins on the cross so that we can re be redeemed and made be made children of God. Before he came, the whole world was in darkness, violence, greed, sexual immorality, and other sins dominated the world. And the whole world was under the power of sin. But Jesus was the light that came to the world and changed the whole world for the better. And all of us individually, he didn't just change the world, but he also blessed us individually by causing us to be born again because we're all born sinners. Even if we are born in a Christian family, we are still sinners. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. That means we are people who are sinful, deserving God's judgment. It means we are sinners not because we make bad choices. Yes, absolutely, we make bad choices. But we are sinners because of our nature. That is who we are, not just what we do. It is who we are. We are enslaved by sin. And Romans 6, 6 says, Jesus came to save us so that we will be no longer enslaved to sin. So that means before Jesus came, we were all enslaved to sin. Our will, our faculty, our reasoning, our feelings were all enslaved to sin. We were born completely hopeless, helpless, under the power of sin, death, and the devil. We have no desire, no ability to, feel, to fulfill the, great, the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all our hearts, without soul and strength. We are born naturally sinful. We naturally do not love God. We naturally hate God. Or we naturally are indifferent toward God. We are dead in our trespasses, as Ephesians 2.1 says. Our whole humanity is enslaved in a sinful nature. We are completely depraved, completely unable to choose God naturally. But in our complete hopeless, helpless state, Jesus came to save us. He came to open our hearts to see his glory, to see his character, and to accept him. And that is the great news and our great salvation. He came to redeem us from the power of sin and make us a new humanity. That is a blessing we have in Christ. The word redemption here in the New Testament was, refer was used to refer to the price someone paid to redeem a slave from the bondage of slavery. And God used that term to help us to understand that Jesus has, to pay, the, he has paid the price on the cross to redeem us from the slavery of sin. That is our great blessing in Christ. And not only that, after we are redeemed, we are adopted to God's family. And now, God the Father loves us with the same love that he loves his own son. And not only that, he gives us his authority, his divine authority. We are heirs with Jesus to rule over his new world, his kingdom, and a new heaven and new earth, including angels. And that is all because of our union with Jesus. And that is the greatest blessing we have through God the Son. It's far more better than gold, silver, riches, reputation, whatever this world offers. And so our life should be filled with unending praises to God for this great blessing. Now, I want to ask you, how often do you thank God for your salvation and your inheritance. I know you, we thank God for a lot, a lot of other things, and we should. 
But this salvation inheritance, our praise for God, should be the driving force of our prayers, should be the dominant character of our praises in our prayer life. And if that does not characterize your prayer, your praise today, God wants you to change that. Every single day, thank God for your salvation and your inheritance. Now, let's look at the third reason for praising God, for the Holy Spirit's guaranteed inheritance. This is in verses 11 to 14. So after God the Father sends God the Son to provide salvation, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to open people's dead hearts to believe in Jesus. According to Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, faith in Jesus is a gift from God, from the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray to God to open the hearts of non-believers. And once a non-believer believes in Jesus as Savior and Lord, verse 13 says that God the Father seals that person with the Holy Spirit. And he's a guarantee. And this means that he will send the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, in a new believer's hearts permanently. It's guarantee. It's a deposit. He doesn't come and go. And the Holy Spirit living, living us guarantees us Help us to know that God will not change his mind. He will not change his mind about our adoption. He's not going to adopt us today and then one year later unadopt us and not give our inheritance to us. God is not like man, and he's not like the Greek gods that people created during Ephesians' time. You see, back then, gods were very undependable. They changed their minds all the time. So for God to give us the Holy Spirit, he's trying to comfort us and us make sure that he's faithful to us. Just like a husband is faithful to his wife. He gives us the Holy Spirit to guarantee our inheritance in God and and like I said, this inheritance in the Bible is the kingdom of God. It's utopia, a paradise that God will give us when Jesus comes back. And in that paradise, we will have a perfect new body without sin. That is our inheritance. So we can thank the Holy Spirit for his assurance. And when the Holy Spirit seals us, we are protected by God through faith, just as First Peter says. Now, I think many of us will ask, how can I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Uh, that's a very good question. The Bible gives us two ways that we can know we have the Holy Spirit. And the first way is to know is that you have the Holy Spirit because you have confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. So if your confession is actually real, it's from the heart, and you're not using this confession as a magical formula to manipulate God so you can get into heaven, then you can know that you have the Holy Spirit. If your confession is true. And the second way that we can know that we have the Holy Spirit is that we will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is in Galatians 5, verses 22, 23, and elsewhere in the Bible. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what it means is that there has to be a transformation in your life. Not perfection. But transformation, there has to be change in your life. Before you were running hard after sin, but now you have changed. You want to please God. You want to love God. Not perfectly, but you want to. And that you struggle with sin. The fact that you struggle with sin, that means there's life in you. That's what Galatians 6 says. The Holy Spirit struggles without sin so that we may not do what we want to do. Without these signs, 
these two signs, no matter what other signs people give you, you are not a Christian. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You must have these two signs to be assured that you have the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people get false assurance that they are believers, uh, that they have the Holy Spirit. I heard oftentimes that you can know you have the Holy Spirit if you are in a cold room and you don't have a jacket but you feel warm, that you have the Holy Spirit. That is not in the Bible. If, if you think it's in the Bible, find it for me and show it to me. I will repent. Okay? That picture is not a sign of the Holy Spirit. And some people say that you have the Holy Spirit. There's a sign that you are saved because you speak in tongues. Now, that is not true. This is very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 to 30. Paul rhetorically asked, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do we all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? So tongues is not a sign of salvation. It's a gift for ministry. And all our gifts are different for ministry. And so we don't... Uh, speaking tongues is not a sign of salvation. But many people ask, well, what about Acts 2, Acts 8, and 19? When the Holy Spirit came upon all of them, and all of them spoke in tongues... What about that? Well, I want to ask, were the apostles saved? Were they Christians before the Holy Spirit came upon them? Of course they were. They were saved. It's not a sign of salvation. They were saved before the Holy Spirit came upon them. So why did everybody speak in tongues? Why was there a special physical appearance of the Holy Spirit at that time? And there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that the speaking in tongues is a sign that the old covenant has been set aside and the new covenant has been established. And the promised Holy Spirit through the new covenant has also come. And so there's signs of miracles to show that, that he has come. It's just like when the old covenant was established, there were supernatural signs. The mountain of God was in smoke. It quaked. There was supernatural sound of trumpet. And there was thunder and lightning. People were so scared. So, but once that old covenant was established, no miraculous signs were necessary anymore. It's the same thing with the new covenant. That's the first reason. It's to show the transition from old covenant to new covenant. And the second reason why Everybody spoke in tongues is to authenticate the authority of the apostles. Only apostles had the power to pray for people, and everybody had this special physical appearance of the Holy Spirit, and everybody spoke in tongues. It's to show that the church of God has been established because the church, according to Ephesians 3, as a mystery in the Old Testament, but is revealed through his apostles and prophets in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.20 says, The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So as, pro as apostles, they need to authenticate their authority. And this is what God gave them, this authority to show that they're apostles. Even Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I have done the sign of apostle to authenticate his office. And we know that only the Holy, the Holy Spirit will only come down like that with apostles. Look at Acts 8, verse 6. After Philip the prophet performed miracles, proclaimed the gospel, and many people believe, many people became Christians. But none of them experienced that supernatural appearance of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues until, until the apostles John and Peter came and prayed for them. So the special appearance of the Holy Spirit 
speaking in tongues can only happen when there are apostles. So this is not normative. Speaking in tongues is not normative. It just shows us the transition from old covenant to new covenant and to authenticate the authority of the apostles. There are no more apostles. They're the foundation of the church. If someone claims to be apostles, then ask them to perform the signs of apostle. I doubt they will do that. And by the way, the gift of tongues is a gift of prophecy uh, through a language that the speaker had never learned naturally. It's not primarily a language that you use to pray to get closer to God. It's prophecy. And we know this for sure because 1 Corinthians 14.5 says that if the gift of tongues can be translated, it is equal with the gift of prophecy. It is equal. And then Acts 2.18, when Peter quoted Joe, when people start speaking in tongues, Peter quoted Joe to show that Joe's prophecy has been fulfilled. And what did Joe's prophecy say? He says, they shall prophesy, not they shall speak in tongues, but this prophecy was fulfilled because speaking in tongues is the gift of prophecy. So speaking in tongues is not a pray, primarily a prayer language that you use to get closer to God. It's the gift of prophecy. And uh, a gift is something that you use on a regular basis. It's not something that happens to you in, once in a while. That is a special intervention of God. You know, as a prophet back in the early days of the church, they didn't prophesize once in a while. They regularly prophesied and were recognized as a prophet because they used a gift on a regular basis to edify the church. So as believers, when we believe in Jesus, we will automatically receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit solely transform us into the image of Christ. He seals us. He guarantees us our inheritance, and He protects us. This is the blessing that we have from the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, we have been blessed beyond imagination by our triune God. Every person of the Trinity is involved in bestowing blessings to us. God wants us to know how much He has blessed us and praise Him every single day with unending praises. Now think about it. It's the most incredible blessing in the world. Before Jesus came, this world was dominated by violence, darkness, sexual immorality, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Now just look at it in this country, the Batak people. Before Christianity became dominant in that religion, before Christianity was introduced in that, re in that region, they were savages and cannibals. I don't mean any disrespect for you, for Batak. We're all dark in our hearts. But this is what one Batak person told me. They were savages and cannibals. They were living in filthiness. But God, the Father, sent his own son to suffer and die for them. And not only that, the Father adopted these savages as his own children. Can you believe that? That is amazing. And then he gives the same love that he has for God the Son to these cannibals. And not just that, he gives the glory of divine, divine authority to rule with Jesus over all of God's creation, including angels. This is just absolutely amazing, mind-blowing. Can you imagine an earthly, earthly king who, who would do that? I cannot think of anyone. Now, we recently saw the coronation of King Charles in England. Now, we saw his majesty and glory, his clothing, his parade, his clothing, his crown, his carriage was splendid. Now, can you imagine King Charles sending his firstborn, William, to rescue a child in a slump 
in a hostile country. And as William obeys and tries to rescue this child, he gets shot and injured. But eventually, this child is back rescued and is, is, is brought back to England. And once the child arrives in England, King Charles adopts the child to be his own son. And so now this child from the slum no longer lives in a filthy place, but in a magnificent palace. And King Charles gives his, gives his adopted son the same love that he has for Prince William. And not only that, this child gets to enjoy the authority of the royal family with the firstborn, William, and rule the whole England with Prince William forever. I mean, can you imagine the generosity and the grace behind that? That's amazing. Now, of course, we know that King Charles and Prince William would never do that. But that's exactly what God, the king of the universe, and his son did for us. Now, we may not be born in a slump, but we were all born in a spiritual slump. Our hearts were darkened, even if we were born in a Christian family. And through Jesus, he rescued us and adopted us and has given us the inheritance of God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, God's love is unimaginable. He has loved us with unimaginable generosity and grace. And our natural and fitting response should be a life filled with unending praises to God. We should thank God every single day for our salvation and inheritance. And this should be the driving force, the dominant characteristic of our praises in our prayer. Don't let other things crowd out these things because these are our greatest blessing and we should be the most thankful for our salvation inheritance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. It is beyond our imagination. It is beyond what we can think of. And thank you for our salvation inheritance. May we be encouraged. May, we, may our hearts be filled with joy and empower us to praise you every day and to live with you today, not just today, but the rest of our lives. May you be honored and glorified in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.